Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. We are obviously just finishing the uh, most wonderful time of year, right? That Christmas season. And every year at this Christmas season, uh, my wife and my family, we will watch, as probably many of you do, endless Christmas movies. Some Some of them, truthfully, just horrible. And some of them, truly classics. Well, one of those that is... Actually, my wife's favorite is the very old version, classic version of A Christmas Carol. Now, if you've ever watched that, and some of you, depending if you have kids or not, there are a myriad of versions. Some of them have mice in them and all kinds of things. And so there there are a lot of versions of A Christmas Carol. And I, I don't know about you, but if you've ever watched and and seen the, the, the various parts. Uh, the story is, in some respects, uh, odd. And, and I, I would suggest today that most of you in this room, you've actually never read Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. You've just watched all the various cinematic renditions, right? That, that's what you've feasted on, so you've never really read the story. And, and, and full disclosure, neither have I. All right. But it is an interesting story. Right. And especially uh, the renditions are fascinating. So a couple of years ago, I came across this other movie that kind of gave some background. It kind of gave in a in a movie version some background to what was happening in Dickens life when he wrote a Christmas carol. And one of my favorite parts of that movie is actually the end. When it's all over, they have a couple of frames where they have words come up, and the words, to me, make the entire thing worth it. At the conclusion of the movie, they offer several fascinating facts about this book. Dickens, in some ways, unbelievably produced A Christmas Carol in just six weeks. Uh, It is a short novel. It's been described as that, a folk story, short story. But in six weeks, he wrote and published A Christmas Carol. It was published on December 19th. Now, coming from, uh, to some degree, a professional procrastinator, that's an all-time tight window. You know what I mean? Five, six days before Christmas? You know, he publishes... A Christmas Carol. But I don't know that you know, every single copy he published, every single copy was sold by Christmas Eve, five days later. And one of the pieces that I love in those closing credits, it says, seemingly overnight, charitable giving soared. Which I thought was fascinating. It changed in many ways the manner in which we today celebrate Christmas. Now, I will confess to you, since I first saw that several years ago, it changed the way I look at the movie that my wife enjoys so much, A Christmas Carol, and all the pieces that go into it. Why? Well, in part, it kind of makes more sense. It kind of helps make sense of what Dickens was wrestling with and struggling with as he wrote this story, The Christmas Carol. The background is incredibly helpful to understanding the whole. And folks, the truth is this. For many of us, for many of you, the way that you engage the Bible is the way that you engage the story, A Christmas Carol. You've watched the movie, and parts of it, truthfully, it's just weird. A ghost of Christmas past, a ghost of Christmas pre- a ghost of Christmas future. What was he thinking? Right? 
some background helps. And that's what we need as we approach God's word. For many, many, many of you, if you will just gather a tiny bit of information about what's going on in a particular book you're reading in the Bible, you'll be shocked. That book, it will open up to you, right? So that's what we're going to do today. I want to give you a little bit of what Paul is doing. Now, again, I will confess to you at the outset, I'm giving you a pea size of a giant, massive, huge, too big to describe bucket of information. All right. We're just looking at a teensy tiny piece. But what I want you to see as we walk through this together today is that the gospel is for you and it calls you to live a purposeful life, an intentional life. The gospel is for you, but it calls us to something. It calls us to change. It calls us to be different. So several important pieces that frame this book for us. First, and we know this, and there really is no legitimate argument against it. Paul is the author. Uh, Paul is writing to the church at Rome. Now, the church at Rome has been described a couple different ways. This is a mature church able to take some pretty heavy teaching. But Rome is also a church that there were some struggles. There was some conflict in this church. It's also a church that Paul didn't start. This is the only letter in our New Testament where Paul is writing to a group of people he did not begin ministering to. And in a sense, Paul has no jurisdiction over them. Paul is writing to them, even though that is the case, as he concludes the letter, and we'll see this in a while, chapter 16, he greets at least 26 people in this church. So for not starting it, he, he still knew them pretty well, right? I mean, can you imagine somebody sending us a letter and they greet 26 of us? We'd say, well, man, whoever they are, they, they know us at least a little bit. You know what I mean? The date uh, for this writing from Paul probably is in the middle of his third missionary journey, the mid-50s. Now, if you remember, by the end of Acts, where is Paul? He's in Rome. We just finished that in November. Paul is in Rome, but likely at this point, it's been five to eight years since Paul wrote to the church, to these believers in Rome. Again, this church potentially has some issues going on, and the conflict is similar to the conflict that's addressed in, addressed in other books. It's relational. It's conflict between Jews and Gentiles. And folks, whether we like it or not, that is a quandary for us that ironically in 23-24 we're seeing resurface again. The conflict between Jews and Gentiles. Right? That, that jumped onto the front of the newsreel this past year. The conflict that exists there. Well, this was a reality in the first century, and it was a reality that Paul dealt with over and over and over and over again. And he's going to address it again with this church. Now, again, these are mature believers. These are believers who can take some really heavy stuff, as, as we'll see as we walk through this book. And yet there still was a need there. And what I want us to remember is this. A couple of things. Number one... This has always been the issue in the church. You know, sometimes when we are part of a church, when we engage in a church, maybe we have a history with a church, there's conflict and we say in our minds, man, that shouldn't characterize the church. That's true, it shouldn't. However, it always has. It always has. You look back at the first century, Paul is addressing conflict in the church. Why? Because sinful human beings are part of it, and therefore there's always going to be the potential for conflict. There's always going to be the potential for issues, for friction. And so a couple things are true. We need instruction on that. Paul instructs them in regards to that. Some of the greatest truths about how to engage one another are found in Romans. We'll see when we get there. The end of Romans 
uh, uh, 14, it is amazing, or 12, it is amazing. You can't walk away from that passage and not say, okay, I have work to do. <laughs> Man, I got I to gotta work on some of the way I respond to other people in the church and outside of the church, even those who are persecuting me at times, or at least it feels like that. Relationships are hard, and we need God's instruction to navigate them wisely. And we don't just need God's instruction, we have to listen to it. We have to heed God's instruction. You can hear it, but if you walk away and don't let it change you, well, it's not going to do anything, right? So we need God's help for relationships. So what's the purpose of this book overall? There's a lot of purposes that are suggested, a treatise on the gospel, an explanation of the righteousness of God, or a defense of the righteousness of God, defense of justification by faith, uh, some have described it as maybe an explanation of how God accomplishes salvation for us. Uh, some have even suggested that really the overall theme of Romans is a request by Paul for mission support, which initially when I read that, I thought, really, that's, that's a new one. I don't know that I've heard that. But if you read the end of chapter 15, Paul gives a pretty lengthy explanation of his desired mission in Spain and their ability to support that mission. Well, maybe, maybe that is why he explains all this stuff, right? So it seems to me best to consider Romans really as a defense. Paul's offering a defense to these believers of what he is teaching about the gospel. Remember, by his third missionary journey, Paul has already run into some significant trouble. Thessalonica, Philippi, Greece, Athens, right? There's some significant things. Some of that word may well have gone back to Rome. Again, Paul names 26 people he knows. So part of Paul's concern is that they understand accurately first what is he teaching about the gospel? What does that look like in relation to Jews and Gentiles? And they're coming together. Paul's defending that. And Paul does all of that, we could say, in part to justify his request for help to go and spread this good news in Spain. Makes sense. So theological themes that come up throughout the book, and we won't spend long here, but these are huge. They're big, 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 big themes uh, throughout. First, we, we know this one already. We'll talk about it a lot. The gospel. The gospel. Soteriology. Soteriology is the study of salvation. Paul gives a massive explanation. I would argue the largest part of this letter is the explanation of the gospel and its implications for Gentiles, for Jews. What does that mean? How does that strike us? What do we do with that? Paul's going to address that in chapter 1, the middle of chapter 1, verses 16, all the way to the end of chapter 11. So that's the bulk of our focus is the gospel and all that it means. And remember, uh, back the second week of December, we walked through all of the pieces of the gospel that Paul addresses in this book. You remember that? Conversion, regeneration, union with Christ, justification, reconciliation, adoption, sanctification, glorification. Listen to me, many times... If we are not careful, we pull out one piece of that, one piece of those, and we emphasize that. For some of you, depending on your background, conversion is what has been emphasized. For some of you, justification is what's been emphasized. For some of you, sanctification is what's been emphasized. Stop for a moment and remember, all of those are the building blocks that together compose what is the gospel. It's, it's all of those realities, not just one of them. So therefore, we can explain or express the gospel in a transforming relationship with Jesus. The gospel is a transforming relationship with Jesus. 
Again, stop and think with me for a moment. That doesn't mean we're all transformed at the same time or in the same way or at the same pace. All of us are in various spots in our journey with Jesus. And yet, if we have accepted the truth of the gospel, we have begun a relationship with Jesus. And before you can do anything, you must, listen carefully to me, you must begin a relationship with Jesus. You must acknowledge your need. You must acknowledge that he's the only way. He's the only hope you have. And turn in faith to Jesus. If you have never done that, today's the day. Don't wait. Don't delay. Do that today. You can't go forward without it. The second major theme, obviously, is Christology, and we'll see a lot about Jesus, his work, his life throughout the book, and especially the implications. But a third one that often can escape us is actually theology proper. It's called theology proper because theology itself is the study of really all of the truths of Scripture. Theology proper is the study of God. This book is loaded with truth about God. In reality, the word for God is used 153 times in this book. Second only to Acts, which is twice as long as Romans. That, that's amazing. Uh, that word, uh, per the size, is used more in Romans than it is in Acts. Which is amazing. Every 46 words, I think it is, God occurs in the book of Romans. This book is about God. Not just Jesus and certainly not just salvation and how it impacts us. This book is about God. And we'll see that as we walk through it together. His action, his work on our behalf. Third, it's about ecclesiology. Or fourth, it's about ecclesiology. It's about the church. Now, what I want you to note is by the time we get there, hopefully we'll understand a lot of the doctrinal pieces, a lot of the message of the gospel, chapter 1 to chapter 11. And yet, the richness of this book really pops out at us in chapter 12 to 15, where Paul says, now, all these big, rich truths about the gospel, they're supposed to impact the way you do church together. Right? The ethics of the gospel are supposed to shape our relationships with one another. They're supposed to shape the way that we engage each other. Uh, they're supposed to be a guide for us. So the outline of the book, it's fairly simple. I'll probably never tell it to you again. But we really have kind of the introduction in verses 1 to 15. Uh, it's one of Paul's probably longer introduction. Certainly the first seven verses are a longer introduction. In some way, Paul is kind of throwing out uh, initially what he's going to cover throughout in some respects, what he's going to flesh out much more fully throughout the book. As I already told you, chapter 1, verse 16, all the way to the end of chapter 11 is the second part. It's the explanation, the defense of the gospel uh, especially in relation in chapters 9 through 11 to the Jews' response. H how can this gospel be all that Paul says it is when a Jewish Messiah has been denied, rejected by the Jewish people? So Paul's going to address that at length in chapters 9 through 11. And then... Paul's pastoral exhortation and care for the church, chapter 12 through chapter 15, the middle. And then he gives an explanation of his mission, Spanish mission, and a request for support. The end of chapter 15, verses 14 to 33, and then chapter 16, Paul's concluding comments and exhortation. And the end of Romans is fascinating. It sounds like at the end of chapter 15, Paul's done. He's given his sign off. Right. It's that's, that's the way it sounds. And then he goes into chapter 16 and chapter 16 is literally it's it's all these goodbyes and exhortations. Right. It's just it's just a bunch of instruction and say hey to this person and this person and this person. And 
this person, Paul demonstrates in that, in some respects, the relational nature of the union that we share in Jesus. It is relational. And we must be relational with one another, right? That's why community, church, body matters so much. And we've looked at that in other places in the New Testament. So the overall theme of this book, and I'll tell you this week after week after week, I expect you to have it memorized by the end of the day, if you would. Somebody thought I was kidding. I wasn't kidding. Um, It's to clearly explain the connection of Jesus, the gospel, and defend it in spite of the rejection of Jesus as the Jewish Messiah by many of the Jews and to call these believers specifically to live daily the ethics that exemplify the truths of this glorious gospel. Listen, you have to live this. You have to live this. Or it's not having the effect God intended. This has to shape us. So again, as we walk through this, Today, I want you to note with me, the gospel is for you. And it calls you to live in a purposeful way, to be intentional with your life. Now, as Paul begins, he begins first in verses 1 and 2, and we've already read that together. Paul and the gospel of God is really that first section. He begins with a description. And for some of you, you want to learn, maybe, I hope that you do, how to better study God's word. In truth, especially with Paul, Paul is one of the easiest to study, though Paul is the one of the most technical. Paul lays everything out so beautifully. He gives us these phrases, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. And so you can walk through and pick out the pieces that will help you better understand Paul's point. He is called to be an apostle. He is set apart for what? The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. That's significant. He promised beforehand through his prophets. Where? In the scriptures. Do you see how you can kind of take this apart piece by piece and better understand Oh, that's what Paul's trying to explain to us. That's how we study God's word. That's how we together will study God's word as we walk through this book together today. An epistle is a different kind of literature than narrative, right? So when we go through Acts, we're looking at big chunks. Why? Because the whole story is the point, right? In these smaller sections, we have paragraphs. Literally, in the original language, if you look, there are paragraphs. Verses 1 to 7 is the opening paragraph. And even in the original language, sometimes they divide those paragraphs a little bit different. But the second paragraph is verses 8 to 15. So good good guess for you for next week. We're going to do the second paragraph. I mean, if you wanted to look ahead, that's where we're going, right? And then the third paragraph, and then so on and so forth. So that's how you personally can dig at the word. And you're going to do that differently than I would or differently than your spouse would. But you can personally today start digging at God's word for yourself. All right. So first, Paul begins with the reality that he is a servant of God. That word servant is a, the literal word that we could understand today as slave. Now, immediately in our minds, our minds as uh, Westerners go to slavery in America 300 years ago, right? That's not the same as this kind of slavery in the first century. Certainly, and I want to be careful we don't mischaracterize this, but slavery in the first century, uh, we're not arguing, was always humane or about being kind. That that is not the case. Uh, Slavery is always a hard, terrible thing. And truthfully, folks, it still exists today. It still is a reality today. The difference is people are being kidnapped 
and forcibly enslaved and sold some of them over and over and over and over again. So when we talk about this, what I want you to understand is what Paul is thinking of. At this time, oftentimes, a servant, a slave, was part of the fiber, the family makeup. This was an individual that took part in the family, that that was part of them, that uh, they cared for to some extent. Many of them at times had volunteered for whatever reason, because of maybe financial difficulty or some catastrophe in their life, they would volunteer for this. But what Paul uses this word for is simply this. It is to demonstrate his devotion to Jesus and the unreserved ownership of God in his life. Listen to me. For many of us, those first words are almost the biggest hurdle. You, too, are the servant of God. He owns you, right? When when we talked about Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, Paul says, live your life every day as a sacrifice. So I am, part of my worship is to give myself repeatedly every single day. And somebody told me after we talked about Romans 12, 1 and 2, that they had heard, and it's true, I've heard the same thing. The hardest thing about being a living sacrifice is you're always jumping down off the altar, right? You're always getting down and trying to run away and do your own thing. This is what we're called to. This is what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And listen very, very carefully to me today. I don't want to mince words and I don't want you to misunderstand. If you don't view yourself as unreservedly committed, devoted, owned by Jesus, you aren't understanding what Paul's going to talk about. That's what the gospel is. You are his. He purchased you and you live your life, your ambitions, your thoughts, your money, your possessions, your relationships, they are all bound up in that reality. That's what Paul is getting at as he begins. He says, I am a servant of Christ Jesus. He goes on. He goes on. And it's, it's fascinating to me. I, I kind of discovered as I was walking through this this week. For the Greek people, that was a deplorable thing. And I thought, how funny is that? Because it's a deplorable thing in the West today too, right? I'm not anybody. I don't work for anybody, right? You're, you're not going to tell me what to do. Well, the Greeks held that as well. But there were many Easterners, actually, they would regularly identify themselves as the servant of their God or their king. It wasn't a foreign concept, as Paul writes this, though it was a despised concept to the Greeks. No, 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 I, I, I don't work for you. You don't own me, Right? Paul is acknowledging that and yielding. He's yielding to that. Are you? Do you? Does God set the priorities in your life? Does Jesus set the priority in your life? He should. He can by God's grace. Paul goes on and he says, called. Called to be an apostle. Now this is interesting because this call is very similar to the Old Testament prophets. Remember Moses. God calls him. And where does God call him? From birth. Right? I mean, remember as a baby, all of Moses' contemporaries, they were being killed by Egyptian soldiers. And where is Moses? He's in a basket floating with enormous crocodiles in the Nile. Right? Why? Because God called him. Jeremiah, at the beginning of his book, he says, while I was still in the womb, God called me. That's what Paul is saying. That's what God did to me. Now, we walked through that back in Acts, remember? Acts 9, road to Damascus, Paul's got one plan, God has another. 
Paul's on the way to uh, destroy this cell of believers in Damascus. And all of a sudden, this light comes out in the middle of the day that's so bright, it pales the sun in comparison. Blinds Paul. Paul hears this voice. And suddenly, Paul has a new vision. Paul has a new goal. Paul has, as he's just told us, a new master. That's what Paul is describing, God's call. And listen carefully to me. God has called every single one of us to serve him, just like he did, Paul. Keep going. He says, set apart. Paul was set apart for the gospel of God. Now, this is interesting because of the way Paul describes it as the gospel of God. Paul was set apart. He was consecrated to God, consecrated to this almost the priestly duty of sharing the good news with those who desperately needed to hear it. And he describes this good news as the gospel of God. Why? First, because God's the ultimate source. Listen carefully to me. Remember this and don't ever forget it. The gospel originates with God. It's his idea. In the garden, as God issues the curses, Adam doesn't say, whoa, time out. Now listen, we used to be really good buds. I know I sinned. I know she sinned. But we need, we need a, a mediator. We need you to come up with a plan to reestablish our relationship with you. No, Adam was like every other man that's ever gotten in trouble. He was standing there with his mouth open, reeling, right? He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what to say. And what does God say? but I'm going to send somebody. I'm going to send the offspring. There's going to be this offspring. He's going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent and his heel will be bruised, right? Genesis 3, we have a promise. A promise of a rescuer, a deliverer, a messiah. And then in chapter 12 that we heard read today, we have the first of many promises to a man that there will be a nation and that nation will be the source through which the Messiah will come. That's the significance of Israel. We're watching the nation through whom this rescuer, deliverer would come, right? And when, when it comes time, when it comes time for this Redeemer to come, what is humanity saying? We need a rescuer to come and deliver us from our sins. No, they never said that. You're not, you're not going to find that anywhere, right? The Old Testament, they're not clamoring for a deliverer to rescue them from sin. What are they clamoring for? A political deliverer to rescue them from what? Tyranny, bad leaders, Poor leaders, listen carefully to me. In 2024, what are we going to hear a lot of? Clamoring for a political leader to rescue us from bad leaders. Listen to me. Jesus is still the answer. Jesus is still the answer. We need Jesus more than we need political leaders. That doesn't mean we don't need political leaders. But folks, our answer isn't a good political leader. Our answer is Jesus. We as God's people have to see that first. And they are not connected. They are not connected. We need Jesus more than political deliverers. And Paul understood that. And that's why this declaration of the gospel of God from the beginning, this is God's idea, God brings it to fruition and so much so that mankind doesn't even fully understand it. Folks, Jesus' own disciples don't fully get it. The night on which he was betrayed, where did they go? The same place you would have gone and I would have gone. They ran for their lives because they did not understand what was going on. They went and hung out in the courtyard where Jesus was being tried and there denied him. They didn't understand. Listen to me. 
The gospel has always been God's idea. Always. And so we need God's grace, strength to understand this truth of the gospel and for it to transform us. Because that's its purpose, is to transform us. Now, Paul says, as he continues, it was promised beforehand. It was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures through his prophets. God had been saying this deliverance was going to come. We read two of those texts today. Remember, he says to, to, to Abraham, through you, what? All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, how could that possibly happen? Well, the Redeemer is going to come through your line. That's how all the nations of the world will be blessed. Isaiah describing the desperate need of the nations for deliverance. That deliverance will come, right? Through a Messiah. And so today, do you see first, first and foremost, do you see your desperate need to truly be committed, devoted to Jesus? Do you believe right now today, look back at 2023, do you believe your life reflects an unreserved ownership by God. That Jesus' death purchased you so that you could live for Him. Is that what comes out of your actions and interactions in 2023? Is that how you would define, describe the way that you have lived in this past year? Unless you are really really exceedingly blind, your answer should be no. And the good news is there's grace. There's grace for that. You need God's strength to take the next step. You need God's strength to make more of Jesus in 2024 than you did in 2023. You need help. And that help is available to you. What will you do with it? Will you make much of Jesus? Do you understand today as a believer, you have been set apart. You've been consecrated to serve. That doesn't mean you have to be in full-time vocational ministry. What that means is, is that everything you do, as you do your job on a weekly basis, as you engage in your neighborhood, as you engage your family, every single thing you do is focused on, is built around Jesus is that why you do what you do? Is that why you go to work every day? Is to exalt Jesus? It's supposed to be for us as believers. Do you understand today that the gospel comes from God? You don't have it. You don't get it. It won't make sense to you apart from God. You need his help. And he'll help. He'll help. If you acknowledge I need help. God, will you help me understand today? So Paul continues his focus on the gospel as he moves now to Jesus verses 3 through 6. And we'll move a little more quickly through this next section concerning his son. And now what he's going to do is Paul's going to take that phrase concerning his son. And he's going to build out the two things that we described. First, the human aspect of Jesus, his human um, identity and then his deity following that his humanity and his deity he builds out both all that is promised beforehand is promised in regards to the son and it is fulfilled through the man the person the man Jesus Paul is emphasizing both his human aspect his divine aspect of his personhood both are a reality. You say, how can somebody be 100% human and 100% God? I cannot explain that to you. And I can't also explain to you the Trinity, though both are true. Right? Both are true. So this is a reality. Though in some ways we can't wrap our mortal, right? Our frail, our fallen minds. We can't wrap it around that. But it's a reality. It's true. And so we rest in that. The son here is a messianic title. Speaks to Jesus' 
position. Describes him in verse 3 as descended from David. Now what is interesting is, and it is speaking of his flesh, it's speaking of him being born as a baby, being in the line, the tribe of Judah, from the family of David. Joseph on the one side, being from that family. Mary, Luke's uh, genealogy, from the line of Joseph, or from the line of David, all the way back. So Jesus is from the line of David. But one thing that's interesting is this is not emphasized by Jesus ever, really. It's, it's not something that ever really comes out. It does a couple of times. David or Jesus acknowledges that he is the son of David, that he is in that line. But in some respects, I think Jesus avoids that for this reason. What is the expectation from the Jewish people? If we have somebody in the line of David, then what do we have? King. Right? we got to set him up as our king. we got to establish him as our king. And why do you think on Palm Sunday they're calling, Hail! Right? Hail Jesus, King of the Jews. And on Friday they're saying, Crucify him. Why? Because they figured out he wasn't going to be the king. And now we're mad. You know, Kill him on Friday as a tantrum in response to, we wanted you to be king on Sunday, right? You, you had your chance. Let's go. What are we waiting on? Okay, you're not going to do it? Then, hey, let's just be done with you. Let's let you, let you go to the cross instead. Well, this is the response of humanity when they don't understand God's purpose. Verse 4, he goes on and he describes Jesus as being declared the Son of God in power, according to the Holy Spirit. So God powerfully declares the reality that Jesus, in truth, he is the Son of God. What does that mean? He is the second person of the Trinity. This is a messianic identity. But God, God divinely asserts this. God ratifies this truth. This is my Son. How do we know? Because of the resurrection. The resurrection is confirmation of who and all that Jesus is. The work of the Spirit according to the power of the Holy Spirit at work. And the inclusion of the Holy Spirit here is fascinating. Why? Because we start with the Father, we go to the Son, and here's the Holy Spirit. Why? Because there's the Trinity. God is together at work among humanity. All three persons of the Godhead working together to accomplish God's purpose among mankind. This power, this power that is at work to accomplish God's saving purpose in mankind, this power is available to you. Are you controlled by the Spirit of God. That power is yours. Are you living in light of in response to that power? It's a reality for you. Paul finishes in verse 4 with a description, uh, a, a collection of names of Jesus. Jesus Christ, our Lord, he masterfully makes this connection from the Son of God to Jesus. Look at what he says at the beginning, and note this connection. It's the second place in our Bible, listen carefully to me, it's the second place in our Bible you can't miss the connection of the Son of God and Jesus. One and the same. John does it in his prologue, the beginning of his book, verses 14 to 18, he makes this connection. The Word became flesh, and then verse 17, Jesus, right? He is God's grace upon grace for us, right? Here he does the exact same thing. Verse 4, he says, He was declared to be the Son of God in power. And then he finishes what? Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul makes the connection. Son of God, second divine person of the Trinity to the human Jesus, who is the Christ, Messiah, and who is the Lord. Do you live each day as if Jesus is Lord, in your life. We should. We should, do we? He goes on then in verse 5 and in verse 6 
through whom Jesus we have received grace. And he's talking about his calling to bring this obedience of faith. Obedience of faith is the response to the gospel. The gospel, folks, it takes root as we obey by faith. We accept these clear statements of Scripture and we say, okay, I I may not even fully understand what all of this means, but I believe, I believe. Folks, listen to me. The gospel isn't about understanding every single nuance of the gospel and being able to explain every aspect of theology, Christology, soteriology, theology. That's not the point. The point is this. Do you believe today that Jesus died in your place to take your sin? Do you believe? Will you obey? Will you obey? What Paul is describing here is a response. And listen carefully to me. Within our, again, Western culture, there is this part of our church where we go, we might even be semi-faithful or faithful, right? And that's enough. Certainly that's all God's anticipating out of us, right? I come to church fairly regularly, most Sunday mornings, right? Really? That, that's the transformation that God's looking for? And that's not, that's a rhetorical question. I'm not going to answer it. That, that you really believe that's what God's looking for. That's it. You've you got to do business with God on that. But what Paul is calling for is obedience in faith. Something that is absolutely revolutionizing your life. Folks, do you understand the revolutions that have happened in our world over 7,000 years of its existence? You know what happens? People believe something with everything in them. And you know what it does? It changes what they do. Is the gospel changing what you do? So I would dare to suggest today, if it's not, do you really believe it? Do you really believe it? Your presence in this room doesn't mean anything. Do you really believe this every day? Every day of the week? Are you teaching it to your children? Do they believe it? How is this impacting what we do and what we think? Folks, that's the purpose of the gospel. is to shape our very lives. So Paul says this is the calling. God's given us this to bring about this obedience of faith. Why? Ultimately for the sake of his name. Ultimately that he would be glorified, that he would be honored, that his name would be made big. Where? Among all the nations. Around the entire world. Our longing should be for God's name to be big in every nation, everywhere in the entire world world. Have you ever thought about that? Has that ever burdened your heart? In truth, no, it hasn't, because most of us, we live in our tiny little bubble. That's it. This is what we think about, because this is what impacts us. Paul says, no, this is bigger than that. And it is. It really is. He goes on and he says in verse 6, including you. Paul says, yeah, this is, this is a message for, for the nations, but it's also personally, it's a message for you. Every single one of you, this is for you who are called to belong to Jesus. If you're a believer today, you're called to belong to Jesus. And I think Paul phrases that the way that he does Because I think for some Jews, you know what they're thinking? I'm not sure that the Gentiles are supposed to be part of this. And Paul says, this is for every single one of you, Jew, Gentile, or otherwise. You are called if you believe. You are called. You're part of this. Not just the Jews. Not just the Gentiles. You, if you believe, you are part of this. Part of of God's plan. And then he concludes with his typical, typical uh, introductory kind of greeting. He says, To all those in Rome 
And I always love these tiny little phrases that he'll throw in, who are loved by God. And I want you to remember this today. Sometimes for us as God's people, we wonder in our mind, does God love me? Paul reminds them, God loves you. If you know him today, God loves you. And in loving you, he cares about your struggle. He cares about your concern. He cares about your trial. He cares about your worry. He cares about your victories, your successes. God loves you. And are called to be saints. Called to be set apart to him. Grace. Grace to you and peace. And if you remember, grace obviously is God's, similar to our Old Testament has said, God's loving loyalty, God's grace, God's strength, God's help, and peace. Peace is a state of being. It's not a feeling. Peace is a state of being. It's something that you enjoy because you are in a right relationship with God. Today, you are at peace with God because of Jesus. And listen to me, that's the only reason. That's the only reason. You're not right with God because you do good stuff. You're not right with God because most of your good, your hope will outweigh your bad. Listen carefully to me. It doesn't work that way. One bad makes you guilty of all the bad. Our New Testament writers remind us of that, right? So my standing is based solely on Jesus. But because of Jesus, I'm at peace with God. Are you at peace with God today because you have placed your faith in Jesus alone. The gospel is for you. And the gospel calls us, it is offered to us, so that each of us lives with purpose, intentionally, for him. Now, obviously, uh, this uh, goes without saying, we're on the 7th of June, but it's tw- or January, excuse me, it's 2024. And in 2024, our world is defined by secularism, pagan ideologies, hedonism, right? Even among believers, the worship of everything in our world above God, who truly is the only one who deserves to be worshipped, right? The exaltation of people, the exaltation of pleasures above God. And listen to me, if we aren't careful all of those realities can kind of overwhelm us as we think about them. You sit and meditate on all of that for a moment, and it, it feels like, man, the world is caving in. For some of you today, those aren't your concerns. Your concerns are just life. It's, it's maybe your relationship, a relationship. It's maybe an illness. It's maybe a diagnosis. It's maybe a trial of some kind. It's maybe just a mundane, everyday, how are we going to make it this week, this month? Right. But folks, unless we stop and we consider the reality that our God has offered us good news that changes everything. In Jesus, it changes everything. Then we won't respond the way that we should to this good news. The gospel is supposed to reorient our perspective. Do you understand truly today the gospel? Have you responded to it? Are you living in light of it? Listen carefully to me. As Paul writes this treatise in many ways on the gospel, explaining it, who's he writing to? Lost people who have never heard? No. He is writing this to a church filled with believers, and he wants them to understand these truths. Do we understand them? Are they shaping what we do, and how we think. We need help. We desperately, desperately need help. 